0: Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to the show On this episode of the podcast we'll be discussing everything Glenfiddich We'll go through the history of the distillery, current news And of course our personal favorite aspect of the show, the tasting With me as always is my intrepid and brilliant co-host Andy Kleschik Andy, how you doing today? Good! I'm missing my Game of Thrones and oh House of the, the Dragon
1: now. Um, it's that so epic, sad now that's gone. <laughs> yeah, it's not a conclusion to the uh, season, but hopefully they come back for at least two to three more seasons. Oh, I'm sure they will. Um,
0: they know they've already confirmed for one more at least. Yeah, they right. have at least one more confirmed. And as you yeah. mentioned earlier, George R. R. Martin has confirmed they need at least four seasons to get this done. So. He he thinks if yeah yeah. Um, so so we're obviously happy with that episode uh happy with the season excited for more and of course we're excited for this uh this episode andy why don't you go ahead and just jump right on in tell the folks out there everything they need to know about glen fiddick
1: of course so glen fiddick i think is actually the youngest scotch brand we've ever um touched upon so far uh they were founded in 1886 by william grant and his family which actually, that's the company that still owns them, William Grant & Sons. Uh, I think that's the only Scotch brand they own. Maybe if not the only brand across the entire liquor industry that they own. Um, as far as I know, at least. Um, but they took about the first year um, until 1887 when they opened up, um, actually, the distillery in 1887 on Christmas Day that year. Hmm. Um they took that first year, year and a half to basically um, develop the distillery, build the distillery, do all that stuff. Um, it, it was him and only him and his family, um, at least the way they tell it, the brand tells it, um, only him and his family that built the distillery. And it that's why it partially took him a year to build it was because it was like him, his wife, and their nine children um, building it. And the name for this distillery um, actually comes from, uh, like many other uh, brands we've actually covered in Scotch history, uh, comes after a Gaelic word, um, which means, it translated at least roughly means Valley of the Deer, huh. um, which is I'll read you exactly where they're in, um, they're in Dufftown, Scotland, which is, I think still in that valley.
0: Gotcha.
1: Um, so that's what they're named after, and um, they like they kind of had a few very uneventful first years, um, actually distilling, um, but they were one of the few Scotch brands um, to still be distilling, maturing, and operating during at least Scottish prohibition, um, thanks to Grant's, uh, William Grant's grandson Grant Gordon. Huh. Um and actually much like in America, where there was only six bourbon um distilleries operating fully throughout um American prohibition, uh glenfiddich was one of only six Scotch distilleries operating during that entire time. Now I don't know enough about Scottish like history with Prohibition and everything to know if they had like the same laws as America did. Where you were selling during, like under a med- medicinal license, um, I don't know enough about that to know, like how they were selling it and everything. But they were fully operational during that time, okay. um, with Scottish Prohibition, cool. and and then post their Prohibition and post American Prohibition, um, again had a few rough years just because of that. But in eighteen or nineteen fifty seven rather, um, it was William Grant's great grandson who actually came up with the idea of, and they've had like his great grandsons and on have had several great ideas for the distillery, but this was like the first one of many where he basically had the idea. Um, and I think it's kind of ingenious for them to have this, have done this uh, to have coppersmiths like full-time on staff
0: hmm.
1: and on, on site at the distillery at all times. Uh, in part, this worked out well because they have copper pot stills. Um, so you kind of need like a trained copper smith and everything to sure. really weld that and do all that stuff for the still. But, um, beyond just the stills being copper, another big reason they wanted to have these smiths on site was because, um, like they just knew, I think they might have developed the stills or helped work on the stills themselves. Um, But it was partially also because Glenn Fiddick's stills, at least at the time, um, with their unique shape and size um, that they have, it was kind of something that it was very labor intensive to repair them, weld them, do all that work on them. So they wanted to have these guys on staff to basically make sure and know just so well the intricacies of it. Like, Oh, hey, this part's rusting out. Oh, hey, this is what's going on. Like, let's just repair the... Do their own tinkering and repair it. Sure. Basically, with their intimate knowledge. Um, And this was also partially when they started their expansion in the late 50s, early 60s. Um, But it really wasn't into what you would traditionally think a whiskey brand would do. Whereas some whiskey brands, um, at least initially... Um, for them, whereas most whiskey brands will start out by doing a lot of, like, expanding into their own, like, more warehouses, more um, stills, all that type of stuff, in order to expand how much you can actually make and age. Um, <clears throat> what Glenfiddich did is they started out, at least, um, by building their own cooperage uh, on site. And it was something that, like, they had the insight, basically, because whiskeys Again, heavily reliant upon wood barrels, right. and that's what coopers do, is they basically build the wood barrels, um, at least for the whiskey industry, that's what they do, If they build the wood barrels. Um, they decided to build their own cooperage on site because they knew that the barrels were just so important to the making of their whiskey that they were like, you know what, let's start at like one of the very first things that you need— to even be able to age our whiskey, we need to have our cooperage to be able to make the barrels for our whiskey to go into. Um, so they definitely control, and I think that is still operational. As far as I know, that's still operational for them, um, the cooperage is. So that was something that they tried to bring that on site in order to, um, y- you know, control another variable factor in how the, their whiskey is made. As far as I know, they're also one of the only, at least, European whiskey distilleries um, to also have this on site. The only other one that I know for a fact at least has a limited Cooperage capacity on site is uh, Jameson hmm. um, in, over in Ireland. That they kind of do some stuff there. Sure. But then in 1861, four years later, that's when they um, they had another major revolutionary uh, brain and bang. Uh, or rebranding of the um, distillery, or at least the, the product itself. Maybe not the distillery, but the product itself. Uh, because that's when the brand's signature, for anybody that has seen their bottles, that's when their signature kind of rounded, triangular shape for the bottles um, came about. Yeah. Uh, Very well known for that. Yeah, they're that's like one of their signature things that they're known for, exactly. For sure. Yeah. Um, and that, because that's when a, a uh, famous, I forget his name, but a famous Scottish designer basically noted um, the three, who they had contracted with to do this, like develop their bottles and everything. Um and noted that like th- the three main facets of great Scotch whiskey making are water, yeast, and barley. And so that's kind of where they did the triangle. Like one, one corner is supposed to be water. One's supposed to be yeast. What's supposed to be barley? Sure. Basically, the holy trinity of ingredients for Scotch whiskey. (laughs) Uh, And of course, they've had like another, like a lot of other great like releases throughout the years and everything like that. Like on, um, in 18 or 1987, they had their centennial release of their whiskey. Um, of course, commemorating a hundred years of operations. Sure. Um, In 1991, they also had a commemorative 50-year-old bottling from nine different casks, solely those nine casks. Um, And according to their website, this was to commemorate—I forget how many bottles were released from those casks, but it was very, very limited um, as a result of just being only nine of them. But the significance of the nine was to recognize um, and symbolize each of William Grant's nine different children that he had. Gotcha. Uh, when he was still alive. And then in um, 1998, that's actually uh, when they had, they started a new um, aging method, at least for their 15-year-old. And to my knowledge, based on their website, it's still only exclusively used for the 15-year-old. Hmm. Um, their Solera aging method, which I know this is common in wine to do, um, and I know, I think we talked about it in our... Um, way back when we, when we did it in a lot of our bourbon episodes, um, with blade and bow, basically Solera aging is where you'll take, like you kind of continually aging the whiskey. So like, you'll have say a whole bunch of like barrels that are aging up to five years and a whole bunch of them that are aging up to 10 years and then up to like in, <coughs> in Glenn Fittick's case up to 15 years. Um, and so you're basically just kind of doing like a waterfall effect of those barrels into each other so that you're only pouring out so much and it's gain- continuing to gain complexity
0: Interesting.
1: in the end product huh. and kind of continuously changing with each batch year to year that you're releasing. Uh, and like I said, as far as I know based on their website, that's only used for their 15-year-old scotch whiskey
0: gotcha.
1: for Glen um, And in 2010, they... are. Uh, Kind of had a little bit of an issue with one of their um, aging warehouses. Uh, The roof of it actually collapsed during like the middle of winter when it was about minus 2.2 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, And a whole bunch of snow, like, and it was the reason it collapsed was because of snow accumulation, like, a whole bunch of snow and everything got in through the warehouse, and they had, um, like a lot of local contractors and their own guys come out and we're actually, I think able to repair the House in one or two days, something like that. Oh, wow. The roof of it, uh, very quickly. Yeah. Exactly. Like repair that. Um, and so they, as a result of that, and I, again, I think this was another just very limited release that they did just for that year. Um, or next year in 2011 bottled it, um, around that time they bottled it. It was, um, Called Snow Phoenix. I forget the number of bottles, but it was called Snow Phoenix um, to commemorate the roof of that warehouse basically collapsing. Sure. And the the bottles were from those barrels in that warehouse Mm -hmm. during that time to commemorate it. Uh, Yeah, definitely insane. And kind of just, I think, a unique thing for them to do. For sure. Because most uh, scotches are either age-stated or they're like a reserve type you know, distillery reserve or whatever type right. name. For sure. Um, and then so that's kind of some of the very more limited ones that they've done products wise in the past. Um, they actually have a lot of different products that they do. Uh, they had the 12, the common like staple ones that they have are the 12 year old, which we're trying today. And then they have a 14, 15, and 18-year-old. Like, those are the four that you'll probably be able, at least in America, that you would probably be able to walk into most liquor stores that have a decent Scotch selection and be able to find at least one or two of those, if not all four. Um, They had their, like, historic releases, rare and vintage releases, special editions, um, and then their grand series. And then I think in the last year or two, they actually came out with their um, Time Reimagined Editions, which are like, I think a 30, 40, 50, and maybe a 60 or 70 year old. They have it on their website. Uh, Basically all the specifics of this. But again, it's kind of like just like I was alluding to there a bit, like basically decades of uh, at least from 30 years up to 50 years of what their whiskey kind of should taste like of those bottlings Um, and like very ornate bottles uh, like some of like what Macallan has with some of their limited releases uh, as an example, very ornate packaging, like the everything about it. just kind of something to commemorate. Oh, Hey, this is what a, like, this is what we're trying to reimagine a whiskey from, at least here in 2022, like 50 years ago in 1972, here's what it should taste like yeah, now. Definitely. Or, say, 70 years ago, like 1952, whatever, uh, in terms of the decades that they're releasing it. Like, that's what they're trying to commemorate and reimagine in that it series, as I understand it, from their website.
0: I love it. Uh, all right, you ready to do the tasting? Yeah. Cool. As Andy mentioned, we're going to do the 12-year. And uh, as always with our tastings, we're going to start with the nose.
1: Ooh. I get almost like like a pound cake or like a rum cake note on there with like um raisins, plums, stuff like that on the nose for me.
0: Some like darker fruit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm getting that very, very traditional scotch yeah. note, peat, um, maybe some some sherry but also you know just also very much what you were picking up as well yeah like
1: it's very exactly i mean like you said i'm kind of picking up those like fruity notes in it but as you said it's very if you think about scotch uh very traditional what scotch should taste like or at least smell like when you think of like a fruity or floral well not floral but at least a fruity scotch note.
0: definitely all right let's give it a taste cheers cheers
1: Again, like very traditional on the palate for what you would think a Scotch should taste like. Yep. At least outside of something like a Lagavulin or an Ardbeg, something like that that's very not quite a, heavily not smoky.
0: Quite, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's quite as smoky though as like a Lagavulin or an Ardbeg. Yeah. There's maybe a bit of smoke definitely on there. You know it's a Scotch, definitely smoky and peaty. I'm getting more of like those dark fruits that you were talking about. Yeah.
1: That, like, exactly. Like, for me, that is what's dominating the nose and the palate. Some oak in there, mm-hmm. but it's heavily those dark fruits is what's, for me, on the palate and the nose, Definitely dominating it Very across the board.
0: Very smooth, though, I thought. Yeah,
1: like, very smooth, like, subdued. It's kind of one that's, like, yeah, it kind of hits you in the front of your palate with those, but then goes down easy. Like, it's yeah. not, like, trying to be too... Like with some bourbons, when you think of like a very high proof bourbon, like trying to slam you all the way through your palate down through your, um,
0: you don't get that burn.
1: Yeah. You don't get a burn. Like it's just kind of like it introduces itself with a warm hug and then it's kind of like act like you're friends.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. All right, folks, that's it from us this week. Make sure you go over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're on all the platforms. Please subscribe. Leave a review. We appreciate five stars, but if you want to give a different one, I understand. Uh, Follow us on social media. Um, Please share the podcast with your friends, whether that's on social or that's just in person telling them about it. We really do appreciate your guys' support. Have a great week. Pour yourself another whiskey, and don't worry, America. We'll be here to drink you the next week.